Art frees us illusorily from the squalor of being. While feeling the wrongs and sufferings endured by Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, we don't feel our own, which are vile because they are ours, and vile because they are vile. Love, sleep, drugs, and intoxicants are elementary forms of art, or rather, of producing the same effect as art. But love, sleep, and drugs all have their disillusion. Love wearies or disappoints. We wake up from sleep, and while sleeping, we haven't lived. And we pay for drugs with the ruin of the very body they served to stimulate. But in art, there is no disillusion, since illusion is accepted from the start. There's no waking up from art, because we dream but don't sleep in it. Nor do we pay a tax or penalty for having enjoyed art. Since the pleasure we get from art is in a sense not our own, we don't have to pay for it or regret it later. By art, I mean everything that delights us without being ours. The trail left by what has passed, a smile given to someone else, a sunset, a poem, the objective universe. To possess is to lose. To feel without possessing is to preserve and keep, for it is to extract from things their essence. It's not love, but love's outskirts that are worth knowing. The repression of love sheds much more light on its nature than does the actual experience of it. Virginity can be a key to profound understanding. Action has its rewards, but brings confusion. To possess is to be possessed, and therefore to lose oneself. Only the idea can fathom reality without getting ruined. Christ is a form of emotion. In the Pantheon, there is room for all the gods that mutually exclude each other. All have their throne and their sovereignty. Each one can be everything, for here there are no limits, not even logical ones, and the mingling of various immortals allows us to enjoy the coexistence of diverse infinities and assorted eternities. Nothing is ever sure in history. There are periods of order when everything is contemptible and periods of disorder in which all is lofty. Decadent eras abound in mental vitality. Mighty eras in intellectual weakness. Everything mixes and crisscrosses, and truth exists only in so far as it is presumed. So many noble ideas fallen into the dung heap. So many heartfelt desires lost in the torrent. Gods and men, they're all the same to me in the rampant confusion of unpredictable fate. They march through my dreams in this anonymous fourth floor room, and they're no more to me than they were to those who believed in them. Idols of leery, wide-eyed Africans, animal deities of hinterland savages, the Egyptians' personified symbols, luminous Greek divinities,
stiff Roman gods, Mithras, lord of the sun and of emotion, Jesus, lord of consequences and charity, various versions of the same Christ, new holy gods of new towns, all of them make up the funeral march, be it a pilgrimage or burial, of error and illusion. They all march, and behind them march the dreams that are just empty shadows cast on the ground, but that the worst dreamers suppose are firmly planted there. Pathetic concepts without body or soul. Liberty, humanity, happiness, a better future, social science. Moving forward in the solitude of darkness like leaves dragged along by the train of a royal robe stolen by beggars. Revolutionaries make a crass and grievous error when they distinguish between the bourgeoisie and the masses, the nobility and the common people, the ruling and the ruled. The only distinction is between those who adapt and those who don't. The rest is literature and bad literature. The beggar, if he adapts, can become king tomorrow, though in doing so, he'll forfeit the virtue of being a beggar. He'll have crossed the border, losing his nationality. These thoughts console me in this cramped office, whose grimy windows overlook a joyless street. These thoughts console me, and for company I have my fellow creators of the world's consciousness. The reckless playwright William Shakespeare, John Milton, the schoolteacher, Dante Alighieri, the tramp, and even, if the reference be permitted, Jesus Christ, who was nothing in the world, his very existence being doubted by history. Quite a different class of men is formed by the likes of the state councillor Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, the senator Victor Hugo, the chief of state Lenin, the chief of state Mussolini. Those of us in the shade, among the delivery boys and the barbers, constitute humanity. On the one hand, there are kings with their prestige, the emperors with their glory, the geniuses with their aura, the saints with their halos, the leaders with their supremacy, the prostitutes, prophets, and the rich. On the other hand, there's us, the delivery boy on the corner, the reckless playwright William Shakespeare, the barber with his jokes, John Milton, the school teacher, the shop assistant, Dante Alighieri, the tramp, those whom death forgets or consecrates and whom life forgot without ever consecrating. Government of the world begins in us. It's not the sincere who govern the world, but neither is it the insincere. It's those who create in themselves a real sincerity by artificial and automatic means. This sincerity is what makes them strong, and it outshines the less false sincerity of others. To be adept at deluding oneself, 
is the first prerequisite for a statesman. Only poets and philosophers see the world as it really is, for only to them is it given to live without illusions. To see clearly is to not act. An opinion is a vulgarity, even when it's not sincere. Every instance of sincerity is an intolerance. There are no sincere liberal minds. There are, for that matter, no liberal minds. Clouds, I exist without knowing it and will die without wanting to. I'm the gap between what I am and am not, between what I dream and what life has made of me, a fleshly and abstract average of things that are nothing, I being likewise nothing. Clouds, such disquiet when I feel, such discomfort when I think, such futility when I desire. Clouds, they're still passing, some of them so huge it seems they'll fill the whole sky though the buildings prevent us from seeing if they're really as large as they appear. While others are of indefinite size, being perhaps two together or one that's going to split in two, meaningless in the heights of the exhausted sky, and still others are small, as if they were playthings of powerful beings, odd-shaped balls of some absurd game, and now placed to one side of the sky in cold isolation. Clouds, I question myself and don't know me. Nothing I've done has been useful and nothing I do will be any different. I've wasted part of my life in confusedly interpreting nothing at all and the rest of it in writing these verses in prose for my incommunicable sensations, which is how I make the unknown universe mine. I'm objectively and subjectively sick of myself. I'm sick of everything, and of the everythingness of everything. Clouds, they're everything. Disintegrated fragments of atmosphere, the only real things today, between the worthless earth and the non-existent sky. Indescribable tatters of the tedium I ascribe to them. Mist condensed into color, colorless threats. Dirty wads of cotton from a hospital without walls. Clouds. They're like me, a ravaged passage between sky and earth at the mercy of an invisible impulse. Thundering or not thundering. Whitely giving joy or blackly spreading gloom. Stray fictions in the gap, far from the earth's noise, but without the sky's peace. Clouds, they continue to pass, passing always, they will always continue, in a discontinuous rolling of dull-colored skeins, in a scattered prolongation of false broken sky. The day's fluid departure ends in exhausted purples. No one would be able to say who I am, nor know who I've been. I came down from the unknown mountain to the unknown valley, and in the languid evening, my steps were tracks left in the woods clearings. Everyone I loved had forgotten me in the shade. No one knew when the last boat was. 
The post office had no information about the letter that nobody would ever write. But it was all false. They told none of the stories that nobody told them. And no one knows anything for sure about the one who departed long ago. Placing his hopes in the false voyage. Son of the fog and that name is shadow like everything. How many things that we consider right or true are merely the vestiges of our dreams, the sleepwalking figures of our incomprehension? Does anyone know what's right or true? How many things we consider beautiful are merely the fashion of the day, the fiction of their time and place? How many things we consider ours are utterly foreign to our blood? we being merely their perfect mirrors or transparent wrappers. The more I meditate on our capacity for self-deception, the more my certainties crumble, slipping through my fingers as fine sand. And when this meditation becomes a feeling that clouds my mind, then the whole world appears to me as a mist made of shadows, a twilight of edges and corners, a fiction of the interlude, a dawn that never becomes morning. Everything transforms into a dead absolute of itself, into a stagnation of details. And even my senses, to where I transfer my meditation in order to forget it, are a kind of slumber, something remote and derivative, an in-betweenness, variation, byproducts of shadows and confusion. In times like these, when I could readily understand ascetics and recluses, were I able to understand how anyone can make an effort on behalf of absolute ends or subscribe to a creed that might produce an effort, I would create, if I could, a full-fledged aesthetics of despair, an inner rhythm like a crib's rocking filtered by the night's caresses in other far-flung homelands. Today, at different times, I ran into two friends who'd had a fight. Each one told me his version of why they'd fought. Each one told me the truth. Each one gave me his reasons. They were both right. They were both absolutely right. It's not that one of them saw it one way and the other another way or that one saw one side of what happened and the other a different side. No, each one saw things exactly as they'd happened. Each one saw them according to the same criterion, but each one saw something different, and so each one was right. I was baffled by this dual existence of truth. Just as, whether we know it or not, we all have a metaphysics so too, whether we like it or not. We all have a morality. I have a very simple morality, not to do good or evil to anyone. Not to do evil, because it seems only fair that others enjoy the same right I demand for myself, not to be disturbed. And also because I think that the world doesn't need more than the natural evils it already has. All of us in this world are living on board a ship that is sailing from one unknown port to another. 
and we should treat each other with a traveler's cordiality. Not to do good, because I don't know what good is, nor even if I do it when I think I do. How do I know what evils I generate if I give a beggar money? How do I know what evils I produce if I teach or instruct? Not knowing, I refrain. And besides, I think that to help or clarify is, in a certain way, to commit the evil of interfering in the lives of others. Kindness depends on a whim of our mood, and we have no right to make others the victims of our whims, however humane or kind-hearted they may be. Good deeds are impositions. That's why I categorically abhor them. If, for moral reasons, I don't do good to others, neither do I expect others to do good to me. When I get sick, what I hate most is if someone should feel obliged to take care of me, something I'd loathe doing for another. I've never visited a sick friend, and whenever I've been sick and had visitors, I've always felt their presence as a bother, an insult, an unwarranted violation of my willful privacy. I don't like people to give me things because it seems like they're obligating me to give something in return. To them or to others, it's all the same. I'm highly sociable in a highly negative way. I'm inoffensiveness incarnate. But I'm no more than this. I don't want to be more than this. I can't be more than this. For everything that exists, I feel a visual affection, an intellectual fondness, nothing in the heart. I have faith in nothing, hope in nothing, charity for nothing. I'm nauseated and outraged by the sincere souls of all sincerities and by the mystics of all mysticisms, or rather by the sincerities of all sincere souls and the mysticisms of all mystics. This nausea is almost physical when the mysticisms are active, when they try to convince other people, meddle with their wills, discover the truth, or reform the world. I consider myself fortunate for no longer having family, as it relieves me of the obligation to love someone, which I would surely find burdensome. Any nostalgia I feel is literary. I remember my childhood with tears, but they're rhythmic tears, in which prose is already being formed. I remember it as something external, and it comes back to me through external things. I remember only external things. I've never loved anyone. The most that I've loved are my sensations, states of conscious seeing, impressions gathered by intently hearing, and aromas through which the modesty of the outer world speaks to me of things from the past, giving me a reality and an emotion that go beyond the simple fact of bread being baked inside the bakery. As on that remote afternoon, when I was coming back from the funeral of my uncle who so loved me, and I felt a sweet kind of relief about I'm not sure what.
This is my morality, or metaphysics, or me, passerby of everything, even of my own soul. I belong to nothing. I desire nothing. I am nothing. Just an abstract center of impersonal sensations. A fallen, sentient mirror reflecting the world's diversity. I don't know if I'm happy this way, nor do I care. To join in or collaborate or act with others is a metaphysically morbid impulse. The soul conferred on the individual shouldn't be lent out to its relations with others. The divine fact of existing shouldn't be surrendered to the satanic fact of coexisting. When I act with others, there's at least one thing I lose, acting alone. When I participate, although it seems that I'm expanding, I'm limiting myself. To associate is to die. Only my consciousness of myself is real for me. Other people are hazy phenomena in this consciousness, and it would be morbid to attribute very much reality to them. Children who want at all costs to have their way are closest to God, for they want to exist. As adults, our life is reduced to giving alms to others and receiving them in return. We squander our personalities in orgies of coexistence. Every spoken word double-crosses us. The only tolerable form of communication is the written word, since it isn't a stone in a bridge between souls, but a ray of light between stars. To explain is to disbelieve. Every philosophy is a diplomacy dressed up as eternity. Like diplomacy, it has no real substance, existing not in its own right, but completely and utterly on behalf of some objective. The only noble destiny for a writer who publishes is to be denied a celebrity he deserves. But the truly noble destiny belongs to the writer who doesn't publish. Not who doesn't write, for then he wouldn't be a writer. I mean the writer in whose nature it is to write but whose spiritual temperament prevents him from showing what he writes. To write is to objectify dreams, to create an outer world as a material reward of our nature as creators. To publish is to give this outer world to others. But what for if the outer world common to us and to them is the real outer world? the one made of visible and tangible matter. What do others have to do with the universe that's in me?